You are about to embark upon the great crusade. The old myth. The eyes of the world are upon you. Not classroom theory. Hi, this is Wesley Yang. You're listening to the Year Zero podcast, which is hosted at Substack, where listeners can support this work that I'm doing. WesleyYang.substack.com. Your task will not be an easy one. Ahead will be long. We're going to make sure the society wins. Here to debrief about the EPAF conference. Each of us found our way inside of its walls and uh, witnessed um, some pretty interesting stuff. Um, and I guess we should begin by sharing our general impressions and our recollections and what we took away from them. And I guess we can go in order. Um, you want to go first? No, I, I want to go last. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> because. I feel like I need to be informed by the others a little bit more. Mm-hmm. All right, that's fine. Who wants to go first? I probably had the least experience with it. But you had an inside and an outside experience. I had, right, so uh, since I'm going, um, I came in as an activist. My, my goal was not to infiltrate without any sort of... I guess we should each introduce ourselves sure. and say who you are. My name is Corinna Cohn. I am a... Healthcare, gender healthcare activist from Indianapolis, Indiana. I started the Gender Care Consumer Advocacy Network in 2019, and it, it is a very small nonprofit. In fact, uh, it's possible that, that 2023 might be the last year for it, just because it's so hard to keep a nonprofit going in this space. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, one of the things that we've been doing is speaking with clinicians and saying. That there's a, we notice that there's a gap between what the WPATH standards of care are and how that care is actually being delivered in the field. Mm-hmm. So one of the reasons that I wanted to go to EPATH is to have conversations with practitioners to, to talk about what my concerns are and especially to talk about the low quality of studies that are used to justify the provision of gender medicine to children. I also wanted to tell my story about having transitioned as a teenager in the 1990s and the, what I've learned being trans over the last 30 years to see if that information is useful to anybody. So I was not going in uh, surreptitiously. I used my name. Um, it said Corinna Cohn on the badge. Um, I was forced to buy a badge because I tried to get in without one, and that caused something of a stir. So I came, I came on the second day of the conference, and I had my badge only only in the last half of the the second day, and the uh, third day was only a half day. So I, I only got about one full day's worth of the conference. Uh, during that time, I attended um, one plenary session, which is the, the final one, and two breakout sessions. So um, I don't know if... Uh, I, one of the experiences that I had there was I was interrogated by uh, one of the... Um, the uh, organizers of the conference because she wanted to know why I was trying to infiltrate. So we actually did have a conversation about that and that's pretty interesting. Uh, Just broadly speaking, um, a couple of major takeaways that I think are important. One, uh, and and things that I didn't realize going into it. One of them is that I sort of had this idea that the attendees at EPATH would have a monolithic ideology, but I really got the impression that every country has its own set of practices, and that there are different levels of 
um, like if you had a cont- uh, continuum of uh, this is medicine that helps people survive a, a difficult uh, mental disorder, uh, all the way to the continuum of uh, these are people who are trying to achieve their identities through medicine. Mm-hmm. Like I, I heard perspectives across that entire um, spectrum, which which is which was sort of surprising to me, and um, therefore I think that there are opportunities that I didn't realize to actually have uh, all sorts of different types of conversations with people who attended EPAP because they're bringing all sorts of different points of view with them. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that I would like to persuade people to uh, not only hear out my point of view, but also to take some of the concerns seriously and adjust their practices accordingly, I feel more positive that such types of communications can happen as, as compared to before. So broadly, that's that's uh, how I got there and my experiences of it. Could could you go back and summarize the concerns that are written into the Washington Post piece? Which I don't know if you sure you intended to share it, but I don't know if you did. But um, but but there's an argument yeah. there. So I'll, I'll I'll make sure to to, to send a, a copy of that. Okay. So I had uh, at, at age 15, which would have been um, 1991, I was diagnosed with gender identity disorder. That was, in, according to the WPATH standards of care, uh, excuse me, that was according uh, to the uh, DSM-3 book. Uh, it's now DSM-5 and it's considered gender dysphoria. But when I was 15, uh, that really made it very clear that my goal was going to be to uh, take cross-sex hormones as early as I could, which turned out to be age 18, and to have sex reassignment surgery, which was age 19. I was not mature enough at that time in order to really understand what the risks entailed and what the benefits might include. Although I was very confident that I understood those things. Um, I also had not had uh, sexual intercourse at the time that I had sex reassignment surgery. Mm -hmm. So I did have some sexual relationships that were like, you know, uh, yeah, like like would be considered a heavy foreplay, but it, you know not not consummating any sexual uh, relationships at that point. And I was under a lot of very uh, distorted concepts, uh, not only about myself, but uh, about what was possible through the the science or technology of gender medicine. Um, one of the things that I wish that I could go back and uh, several th- things that I wish I could change. For one is I wish that I had learned a little bit more or tried a little bit harder to inhabit my body. I wish that I'd had tried having uh, 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 building sexual relationships with people before trying to fit, decide, no, I shouldn't do this at all, mm-hmm. which I might not have. Um, as it turns out, learning to be a sexual person actually does require time and experience for a lot of people and maybe everybody. And I thought that my discomfort with my body and, and the idea of being with somebody, um, the experiences up to that point, were uh, a sign that I should have mm-hmm. a sex change. Because obviously, if I feel very uncomfortable doing these sorts of things with people, and I don't want somebody touching you know, my, my parts of my body, obviously, if I don't want somebody to, to touch my, my penis, that means I should cut it off. No, I'm being sarcastic. Don't do that. Um, I'm nodding along. Yeah, don't do that. Uh, But I I thought that these were all like things that, like, this is proof. This is proof. 
So I was, I was in this very bad, uh, cognitive space where everything that I, I like everything validated, I should do this. I should do this. And mm-hmm. anything that didn't validate it was like, well, I'm going to discard that and, and not consider that that is a counterindication. And so I did. I took hormones for a year. I had sex reassignment surgery. And for about 10 years, um, I pretended everything was great, even though I had a lot of depression. And after, I guess, about 15 years, things started to clear up a little bit. And I was able to start dealing with what I had done to myself in more realistic terms. And uh, because I think it's Maybe if it took me 15 years, maybe that's a little bit longer, but I think it's going to take a lot of these young people a serious amount of time to process the changes that these uh, gender interventions have done. Because uh, for I think for almost everybody, at first it feels really great to be achieving something so astonishingly powerful if you appear to the outside world as a member of the opposite sex and you start mm-hmm. being treated that way, that is, in, that's incredible. Like, um, it's not power over someone else, but it's like conquering your, your weaker self type of mentality. Like mm-hmm. I am this amazing person that I never thought that I could be. And, uh, that feels fantastic. So if you ask somebody now that you've transitioned, do you feel, do you feel better? Uh, you, you might be in a state of dissonance where uh, three or four or five days a month you might be so depressed that you can't even leave the house. But on some of those other days, you're like, oh, this is great. So if you're mm-hmm. evaluating a question, oh, do you feel better now? Oh, yeah. Yeah, those other days where something happened, it was because of assholes ruining my day, uh, not because, not because uh, I'm having trouble coping with my, my, my medicalization. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, cognitive dissonance here my my bad days are other people problems my great days are because i'm awesome um now uh i'm sorry i'm sort of this is totally off of the e-path but it provides some context anyway i i want to talk to the clinicians because one thing that i heard uh even though i was only there for a short time i heard two different clinicians at e-path say it is such a wonderful feeling when you work with these clients Mm -hmm. And, and their moods change, and they're so happy. Yeah. They're really blossoming and becoming the, the people they're supposed to be. They're supposed to become, like, they're becoming their authentic selves. And it's so great to feel like you're the person that's helping them do that. Mm. Uh, that is the clinicians that, that, that I worked with. Mm-hmm. So, so sort of the same biases that I had, uh, where, oh, I, I feel great this day. I think the clinicians are seeing these, these people, some, some of them on the best days, because they're getting... They're getting what they want. Mm-hmm. And I think that the next step will help. And the yeah. clinicians are very much like BTW, like, I don't have a savior complex. Right. I don't, oh yeah, I don't, this isn't a savior complex. This is... Uh, medicine. This is medicine. Right. right. So uh, I do want to talk to the clinicians about these types of stories and say, look, I know you're feeling great right now. Yeah. Because your clients look like they're doing so well. But you actually need to collect data to figure out whether this intervention is helpful. Yeah. And and it's not data that you can collect in three months or six months. It's got to be... It's like check back in ten years. It, exactly. And the yeah. thing is, loss to follow-up is they receive it on a bad day, and then and then we get a reply is we received it on a good day when I felt strong enough to 
give yeah. the answer, and the answer is affirming that narrative. And so we have the 1% regret rate, right, that is often referred to. That's um, The 1% regret rate is usually, uh, depending on what study you're talking about, but it's often a surgical regret rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eliza, you want to talk about what you saw and uh, what you brought to it? You uh, provide some background about your visit to WPATH and... Maybe you can compare and contrast those experiences and then also situate it within the context of the other event, which was going on, which is Genspect. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so I went to WPATH back in the fall, which everybody knows by now. And I would say I did expect WPATH to be like a much more sedate version because North America is kind of like, I can't remember who put it this way at, at the conference, but like North America is kind of like the gonzo version of Europe. Um, so WPATH did not screen, seemingly did not screen the people who were allowed to present very well, and they allowed people who thought that, like, people with multiple person who claimed to have multiple personalities should be encouraged to transition, even if the multiple personalities disagree about which irreversible steps they want to take toward transition, and, like, they, then, of course, there was the madness from WPATH Central with the, uh, addition of the Unix chapter, I would say that EPATH had a much more convincing veneer of, like, science and medicine. And I... And many fewer activists, which I think makes a really big difference. Like, there are healthcare professionals that have... certainly have an activist mission, but they also, like, have real jobs. And the, the person who brought, I think the most reckless comments into EPATH was the person who was a peer activist, which would be the CEO of the Transgender Equality Network of Ireland, who described during the opening plenary the genocidal movement as a genocidal totalitarian movement that was going to abolish like all democratic institutions and individual human rights. Um, so I, my feelings about EPATH are quite mixed, because on the one hand... The fact that an activist would come to EPATH and that that would be like front and center at the conference is very concerning and does show how mainstreamed this completely invented claim of genocide has become within kind of the trans movement as a whole. That it's even like nestled into the very heart of like the European medical transition enterprise. Um, And the spread is recent. We're mm-hmm. so we're so uh, inured to it already because, you know, the ideological succession advances and we immediately metabolize it and take it as part of our baseline reality. But you would not have heard this from the mouth of someone who was placed front and center, no, the second and even, speaker, right? And even six months ago at WPATH, like there was a lot of talk about, you know, people who there was a lot of like fear mongering about suicide, which would be very common. And but that was the extent of it. It wasn't like mm-hmm. it's this genocidal force that scapegoats trans people around the world and is also like xenophobic and racist and misogynist and homophobic and ableist and you know every other kind of oppression that you can either name or invent. Um, I would say there was also there was kind of a third segment to the opening plenary which was interesting primarily for its defensiveness, I would say. One of the co-chairs of the Standards of Care 8 from 
WPATH presented, and it really was like comparing the standards of care eight to other standards of care in an almost exclusively quantitative sense. And so they would put up, you know, the HIV standards from the WHO and say like, okay, they had this many references and this many reviewers and this many systematic reviews of evidence and like went through all of these steps. And we had quantitatively more of all of those things, which of course doesn't say anything about the quality of the recommendations or the quality of the science on which they're based. Uh, I also did think that it was interesting that far more so than WPATH, there was some engagement with the critiques of gender medicine that have emerged over the last year, primarily, that have broken into the mainstream. But I think it doesn't really strike me as a point to be optimistic about because it's gotten to a point uh, where it cannot be ignored and so it has to be spun. And they are taking, okay, maybe there's this new cohort. It sure seems like maybe there's this new demographic cohort of like younger women and girls who are transitioning. And maybe they are different from the other cohorts, but that's fine. Or they're talking about, well, we don't know everything about puberty blockers and Maybe they have some bone density issues, but kids also get osteoporosis for other reasons. And there's just this constant, like, diversion. Like, they will engage so that they can say we're engaging with our critics, and then they'll divert it into a way where it doesn't harm the fundamental enterprise of, like, transitioning. Transitioning is a massive <laughs> movement within, within and under the banner of medicine. Um... The other interesting thing that I found was really from the, the the other thing that I found was really interesting from the opening plenary was the outgoing president of EPATH basically addressing the conference to the conference taking place down the road, the Genspec conference that is promoting a more kind of open-ended exploratory approach to gender issues. And the way that he he focused primarily on freedom of speech and what it is and what it isn't. And the most memorable line was, we respect everyone's right to freedom of speech, but we choose not to listen to it. And what they're choosing not to listen to, of course, is the evidence that people are harmed, that people have regrets, that we should really think about this, whether this is something that should be provided as medicine. And they also, the other thing is, I feel like I'm not doing this in a very organized way, but it's been kind of a, like... Crazy, crazy week and no time to process. Um, he also compared repeatedly the, the the gender critical movement to flat earthers, to climate change deniers, and to people who think that vaccines cause autism. And so when he's talking about freedom of speech and is your right to freedom of speech being denied, he would say, oh, you know, if a flat earther doesn't get hired or maybe gets fired from like a geology department, like that's not about freedom of speech. Like they're a flat earther, it's a geology department. And the implication is if people who are critical of the concept of gender identity and the process of gender transition are excluded, deplatformed, fired, that this is just a natural response to something that like has been settled. Yeah, they're being canceled, yeah. but they deserve it. They're being canceled, but they deserve it. Yeah. yeah. And they have a right to free speech, but nobody has to listen, and we choose not to listen. Nobody has to platform it. and Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Okay, so you are pre you are pre bunked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I like Eliza responded to all my talking points. Oh, you wanted to go last. That's true, I did, but right. I wanted her to tell me. I wanted to her to tell me what was bad, so I could say what I was optimistic about. But then, well, you're gonna have to respin it, right? Or I'm gonna respin. Or you're gonna you're gonna state your reasons for nonetheless uh, seeing a silver lining on the clouds. Um, all right, battery. Yeah, is pre-bunked a word? It's pretty good. Yes. It is? Or is, is yes. pre-butted a word? Uh, yes. Pre-butted. Mm-hmm. I mean, okay, you know, I'm never going, I'm never going last. They're, they're, not, <laughs> they're not my own coinages, let us say. But, like, you know, they're not in... I would, I would go last anytime. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Lesson learned. <laughs> is okay. your lens open? Uh, no. There we go. And I'll just say who you are. I don't know if you said who you are, but yeah. Did you say? Do you want to say who you, who you are? Well, you said Eliza. I'm Eliza Mondegreen. Okay. I'm a grad student. I'm Lisa Selen Davis. Uh, I'm a writer, and I mostly write about gender issues now. And I, I just want to preface this with um, five years ago when I started research for my book Tomboy. I went to an academic gender conference um, and I listened to some research that was um, important in my book, which was about girls with congenital adrenal hypoplasia. Mm -hmm. And the woman who did the research talked about how these girls who are exposed to testosterone um, in the womb have some uh, male typical interests, mainly kind of like a you know, men's and women's brains aren't that different, but they had like a little bit in the terms of the spatial rotation and uh, a little bit more interested in rough and tumble play mm-hmm. and slightly more likely to be gay. But they were actually less masculine than the control group of tomboys. And almost nobody who talks about this research talks about that, that the girls who were not exposed to, to testosterone were more masculine. And the boys. And, the, um, and, and they were slightly more likely to identify as boys. And what the researcher said was testosterone has a fair amount of effect on your interests, a little bit of effect on sexuality, and even less on uh, gender identity. And then I went down the road to an activist conference where the same research was presented as testosterone is very important in the formation of gender identity. And I got really interested in, oh, how is the same research presented at different conferences? It's, um, it's five years later, two conferences next to each other, one an academic conference, one, one an advocacy group conference, and I thought I would do the same thing. And what's different is that the academic conference now is the one where research is being distorted. And the advocacy conference Mm -hmm. is the one where research is being talked about in a more honest and complex way. That's really interesting. Um, That being said, I thought that, um, as one of these people that's been for like two or three years now, making these points and learning about what's wrong with the research and making the points, learning about the desistance literature that has to do with young kids, 
with cross-gendered behavior or identities and, and the relationship to homosexuality and learning about the low quality of research and the problems with the Dutch studies and just everything I learned trying to communicate it out to the world and finding that the American press and the American uh, medical associations are have zero interest and feel zero need to respond. So to be in an environment where people, clinicians were responding to that. Mm. Defensively, yes. Spinning it, yes. Uh, in order to protect, you know, their investment, emotional, financial, their work, yes. Um, I still found it to be a very important shift, an unprecedented shift. Um, that being said, you know, I haven't, Europeans tend to be more, I was going to say they tend to be more reasonable, but there are plenty of insane authoritarian <laughs> Europeans, but. I haven't tried um, European land acknowledgement. And- <laughs> right, right. So, God only knows what happened on this, on this space hundreds of years ago. So, I took it as <laughs> those people are being forced to answer on some level. They're being forced to answer for what they're doing and for their shitty research, they're responding to the criticisms. And in, in Eliza's pre-buttal, you know, she said it went from denial to spin. Was that what it was? It was something to spin. I mean, it's kind of like they didn't acknowledge it in the past. But, but I, what, what I want to say is, whatever it was, I thought it was very smart, whatever you said, even mm-hmm. though I forgot the first word. Yeah, but to. something to spin. And I thought, okay, but that is a trajectory. And there's a next step after spin. And several people from EPATH accepted the invitation to come to Genspect, including a, a well-known Dutch trans woman and journalist who was actually mentioned in one of the mm-hmm. presentations, including a very prominent Dutch researcher, a Dutch plastic surgeon. While I was at EPATH, I was meeting the reasonable middle-of-the-road people and at times introducing them to each other. I I met this plastic surgeon. She said she was interested in the conference. Mm -hmm. And I said, can I, uh, would you like to meet the Finns? Mm -hmm. And I felt like this woman, this woman from the Netherlands said, I said, oh, why are you interested in the conference? There's not a lot of, there aren't going to be surgeons there. I mean, EPAT has all of this stuff for surgeons Mm -hmm. to just get together I don't think the surgeons give a shit about any anything else. They're just trying to perfect the vaginoplasty. They don't really care about the noise outside. So I said, what interests you? And she said, well, no surgeon wants a, no plastic surgeon wants a detransitioner. So if there's anything we can know to prevent that, I want to mm-hmm. know. And we have this new cohort of, she said, sudden onset, kids with sudden onset gender dysphoria and I just thought this is fantastic so was I surrounded by people like a a woman from Sweden presenting a paper that showed that after that after um, puberty blockers and after hormones there was initial an initial like sharp rise in psychosocial functioning and then a plummet and no one talked, no one said, raised their hand and said, why do you think the kids get worse? Nobody said anything about it. And a lot of that has to do with the 
opening plenary speech, which was about, here's what, yes, we can talk freely here, except don't say anything bad, right? Yeah. So there had been this chilling effect in the beginning. And the research, a lot of it was shit, or it showed kids got worse and nobody said anything. There were very few questions in general. Nonetheless, in my conversations with people, they were, they, the, the fact that it was being acknowledged publicly that were problems signaled to some people that they were able to talk about it. So did I, did I come away feeling like this idea I have in my head that some people can come together and listen to each other, that that, 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 that future might be possible? Yes, I came away with that might be possible. I also, for my own sanity, need to believe that because I've been stuck in this rabbit hole for years. Mm-hmm. So that is that conversation with the plastic surgeon Seeing those real like believers come over from EPATH to the Genspec conference, and by the way, be met with some pretty vitriolic speeches going like "fuck WPATH" and you know, not particularly like comfortable for them. Um, those were inspiring to me, and I have got to take my inspiration where I can get it. Shitty, shitty research and. People justifying their bad behavior, all of it, yes, one hundred percent. But there was this, there was yeah. something that had never happened before. So I wanted to just make sure that we acknowledge that because you know what, one of the reasons that's happening is because all all the stuff everybody here has been doing. Yeah. So I would not like. I definitely would say there are a lot of individuals who have doubts, and that there is more space for individuals to express doubts. At EPATH, like, I also had some pretty interesting conversations where it's like if they assume that you are one of them, then, and you express some reservations that are very sane, that could be about, you know, the new demographics, or, like, yeah, the sudden onset, gender dysphoria, the um, mental health outcomes plummeting, like, why do we treat gender differently than we treat everything else? Why don't we look at the whole person? If they, If you express that, and they think that you are one of them, they will agree with you. Mm-hmm. There is a level on which I think a lot of people who are wrapped up in this know that something is not quite right. And they feel comfortable to express that within a circle of you know general believers. And it was very interesting to me that every time that a negative finding was going to be presented, like the Swedish research that was just like, try puberty blockers, try hormones, try surgeries, and wow, mental health goes to the floor. Um, that it would always be prefaced by... Of course, we all know how effective gender-affirming gender care is. It's like this catechism. But They're like spreading a protective layer yeah, over they it are. so you don't and actually so, see. Or yeah, that you don't, you don't take it in. Yeah, it totally is. It's like there is this... There's the thing that they all hold to be true. Don't stop believing. <laughs> As they close out EPATH with a rousing blast of don't stop believing. Um, and that 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 kind of prevents, to a certain extent, the mounting data that something is wrong from becoming evidence within those circles that something is wrong. I guess I have some hesitations about, you know, when you talk about we've moved from 
denial to spin and spin is part of a trajectory, I, it can be. And I think it could, it can that's be. Right. It could and, be part of a trajectory. Spin can be part of a trajectory toward greater openness and spin can also, if it works, can shut it down. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that's still the attempt. It's the intention. It's the intention, but it's encouraging. Like I didn't know until today that, and that people other than the Finnish had come to Genspect, and that's very encouraging. But yeah, I. So uh, you made a reference to Swedish research that showed that things got worse. Can you, some one of you, summarize what the paper was? And they, I can't remember exactly what they were monitoring, but the kids got puberty blockers, and then right after their mental health whatever they were measuring went up mm. and then over two years it, by the end of two years it's down and then they give them lower than when they began by far lower than when they began and then they give them um, hormones and it goes way up and then it goes way down and so no one asked about that which yeah even was which is kind of a which is kind of a theme both for WPATH and UPATH where it was amazing the number of sessions where it'd be like any questions there would be not a single question oh okay so they presented that devastating finding yes that they presented it in good faith and they put all the numbers out there and they did not uh, but they don't it's like they don't connect but, it but I'll tell you what the what the researcher said because I went up to her. I mean, I didn't want to raise my hand because I didn't want to draw attention to myself. Yeah. And there was not a culture of question asking in great contrast to the Genspec conference where, in fact, people disagreed or pushed yeah. back or, you know, so, and there were lots of questions. In fact, they had to, you know, deny people. They had to but, cut off questions yeah, I had the time versus like, are there any questions? Okay, are there any questions? And oh, you, okay, and no you questions. sort of like, I mean, when, in, in that particular yeah. study, I just was looking around like, nobody's going to ask. I know. What do you think about it got worse. So I went up to the researcher and I asked, and she said, um, and this is a running theme, um, well, we have a lot of restrictions in Sweden. And so they're, after they go on puberty blockers, they're waiting for the hormones. So by the end of their wait, they're, they're really upset, right? Mm-hmm. And then they went on the hormones, they feel good, but they're waiting for their surgeries. Mm-hmm. So that study didn't have surgery. So... Okay. Yeah. So, so it, it, I think it, it just, I only saw those two parts. So by the end of, of the, they have to wait till, mm. till, I can't remember what the ages are, but there were long waits between puberty blockers and hormones. And so she, her hypothesis mm. was that it was the weight because of all the restrictions and that the restrictions are worse now. Mm-hmm. And I said, what about this thing I've heard? Um, about these kids are kind of desperate to feel better and they so they chase it and they get the first thing and they yeah. feel better for a while and then they feel worse and then they get the next thing and that that goes on forever like Corinna talking about trying to yeah. swim to the other side and and like you know she just said that could also be <laughs> um, and so I think I think that what shocked me maybe maybe that's too strong a word or disappointed me was the lack of curiosity beyond their tiny research projects yes so the weirdest part for me personally was um 
the presentation about the, the sex ratio flipping. So they were having to respond to ROGD, essentially. And so this guy from Germany, his presentation is about why are there suddenly a whole bunch of teenage girls when it used to be more young boys or middle-aged men. And he had his reasons. And again, it was just as Eliza described it. It was just, don't look away, look away, look away. It's not mm-hmm. nothing. It's no problem. And then at the end of it, he there's the final slide. And I think it says at the top, open question, something like that, or unanswered question, something. And then it says, where have all the tomboys gone? Mm-hmm. And then he basically goes like, yeah, nobody knows. Yeah. And then there's... I, of course, at a, normally would raise my hand and either say, I, I wrote hundreds of words about that, <laughs> or, or like, could you tr- try to answer the question? Mm-hmm. And then with Eliza, I went up to the guy and, like, was not acting like I belonged at EPATH. Um, but um, <laughs> I, was not, I was not good at being undercover. So I'm not good, I'm not good at pretending to be somebody else, so... Thank God I didn't grow up when in a, in now because I would yeah. be a horrible non-binary like activist, but also know that I wasn't really. So anyway, he didn't he didn't really have answers. Um, I mean, I mean, he had excuses, but he didn't have curiosity. Yeah. Mm. And he about what what else is going on in their lives, which Eliza knows a lot about what's going on in the lives. And when I saw Eliza's presentation at the Jetspec conference, I just thought, yeah, when you ask that question, that really important question, you can't leave that hanging in the air. You have to get together over here with someone who is attempting to answer that question. Mm -hmm. So, and Another, was, yeah. I, I'll just finish this, mm-hmm. this thought because I know I'm long-winded, which is, and then I want to hear what you say. Another reason I am so focused on the bridging is that these worlds have to come together because those people do have some kind of information. This has been going on for 10, 15 years. They know something. I don't know what it is, but like it, they're closed off to this in, entire world of experience and I want I want to I want us to reach out to them in a way mm-hmm. that makes them want to come over and see what's happening yeah and I think that you hit on the most important like the missing piece is like the lack of curiosity and imagination yeah. and that it shows up when there's data that isn't explained and nobody tries and it shows up when like you were talking to this German researcher and you kept floating hypotheses and encouraging him to speculate and, and he just couldn't do it. And, uh, you know, I don't think, you know, he surely has like a PhD or an MD, I, I don't remember, but like, you know, he's not an idiot, but he's not curious. And he thinks there's almost a extent to which we were talking to him and it was like, it's like he doesn't even think that this matters. Like, yeah. he was, there was this interesting moment when he was like, maybe in the future we'll look back at it as this like wave and it'd be like, wow, that was a really, like, I think he said a really colorful time. And it was like, we're giving these girls, like, mastectomies. Yeah. Like, you have to be curious about what's going on here. But yeah. he just, he couldn't join it up. He could not, like, there was a level in which he could not take it seriously. 
And is it the is it the ideology that is doing this to them, or is it simply the narrowness of their specialization as social? The narrowness of specialization surely does not help. But someone like him, he sees enough that it occurs to him that a kind of a provocative, he says, ending slide would be to say, "Where have all the tomboys gone?" But 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 isn't curious enough to be like, "Well, wait a minute, where have all the tomboys gone?" Yeah. Yeah, and I and I also think, um, I mean, I think the lack of curiosity is protective. It is. But it's I, like when you're in a you know when you're in a bad relationship and you just you want it, you're committed to staying in it, and so you're not going to look at anything that's going to make you have to like break it off. That's so often how it seems to me that there's just there's this like defensive structure. What country was this researcher from? Germany. But I, I think the whole conference EPATH is narrow, right? It's it's a few different kind of medical specializations. And yeah. what happened down the road was you had all different kinds of disciplines. Yeah, but at the same time, like, EPATH did make a lot about, like, oh, we were so glad we had all the sociologists here. That's true. Like, they did. But, that's true, that's true. But there was just, that. it just, you couldn't tell. <laughs> well, there was, it still felt like it was so contained. Mm-hmm. And there was no interest in what kind of world the kids lived in. And that's yeah. why I kept trying, but I was trying to get people more interested also in that, at Genspec too, of these kids are being taught about this concept of gender in a way that no one ever has before, right? Like in the, I was raised in the 70s, that word was around, it meant stereotypes, stereotypes were to be defied, Mm -hmm. and you should know about stereotypes so that you can keep them from limiting you. Mm -hmm. Now these kids know that gender is not a social force imposed onto you to limit you, but a deeply felt innate inner sense that has nothing to do with societal forces, even though it is measured in terms of what haircut you like and what clothes you like and what activities you like, and that those things are called, for instance, male activities, a boy's haircut, right? So some of my... I don't want to be like language obsessed, but some of the what I tell people when they other parents if they have a gender nonconforming child is your hair itself. Well, so it's not, I was going to say your hair doesn't have a sex, but I guess it's every cell in your body has a sex. But um, but the length of your sex. hair doesn't make you a the length woman. of your sex. <laughs> the, the haircut has no sex. Your clothes have no sex. The length of your, your sex toys. can have something to do with your sex. But yeah, maybe, yes. But I mean, so in other words, like I'm there's a there's some very basic knowledge that got lost yeah. in the last couple of generations, and I want to bring that into the conversation, and there. They're not open to that, and then at EPATH, but also there are other there. There's there are many many different groups within this because there are also the people saying, you know, the people who are who are not trans ideologists, but 
but who really do believe in like men's and women's brains and Mm -hmm. boys are like this and girls are like this. And of course on the curve, like that, that is true, but that's also socially influenced to some extent. And so I often find myself as a kind of somewhat old school feminist, like somewhat alone in the room Mm -hmm. where I still feel like you haven't considered the fact that these kids, um, for example, a few years ago, I bought a Kindle Fire for my kids, and I had to choose boy or girl when I signed up, and then it populated the Kindle Fire for boy <laughs> or girl, and so the entire world was constructed literally in pink or blue, right? Oh my gosh, so yeah. kids are growing up like that, and if if you're treating gender dysphoria kids or even if you're down the road trying to fight gender identity ideology, we have to look at not just what they're learning about gender identity, but what they're learning about gender, whatever the hell that word means. And I, I am trying to put that in the conversation. Yeah. And I think that's really important. I guess, I think the other thing that I wanted to say about curiosity and it just was kind of slipping my mind, um, I think that the clinicians at EPATH, I think the clinicians at WPATH, I think that they think that they are being curious about their patients and their work. And it is because, like, everything in trans world, there is a surrogate for the real thing that is missing. So instead of being curious about, like, where have all the tomboys gone or why is there this explosion of girls who go on the Internet and it's COVID and they're totally cut off from everything and they're super anxious and depressed and then, oh, my God, they're really boys. We were wrong. Um... Instead of being curious about that, they're really curious, like, oh, like, where do you put yourself in this, like, gender universe? And, like, what are your embodiment goals? And, like, how can we, like, you know, carve out these new frontiers of non-binary surgeries? Because we're not serving those patients whose needs we don't even know how to meet right now when they, like, have these impossible embodiment goals. So these clinicians exercise curiosity, and they do not realize that it's curiosity within this incredibly bounded world. But they feel like they're doing it. And so... and you know, I think that they really care about their patients. And so when, when they hear someone like Gen, an organization like Genspect saying you're harming their patients, they're like, I'm not harming my patients. Like, I really care about my patients. And it's like, you care, but you are not seeing the whole patient. You're seeing this patient's, like, this transgender altar that the patient has constructed, that the patient needs to be realized, and that you facilitate through, under the banner of medicine, through pharmaceutical and surgical interventions into coming into being. That is the thing that you are caring for. And you're missing the whole person. Yeah, and and, and I agree. I, I think I I do think they care. Mm-hmm. I think those people, a lot of those people, care about their. A lot of those, some of those people, mm-hmm. I don't know what Corinna thinks care care about. Yeah, I want to hear Corinna thinks. Well, now keep going. So, in in addition to um, that study. Uh, Karina and I uh, saw presentations on a few papers that had this in common with that study, which mm-hmm. is that they the, the information was collected in good faith and the um, and it was presented in good faith. Yeah, I, I could and, comment on, on a couple. Go ahead. And what they showed was the non-innateness of gender identity and the social influence that was on them, although it was not presented. You know, they were mostly just. Uh, poll, you know, poll polling N of 100 on non-binary identities uh, in Germany, I think. Um, 
guess there's one in Germany. How yes. did they show the not innateness of gender identity? Just, you know, in different ways, like there would be a moment where... The moment that stood out for me was they were saying, well, why are the results of these so different? And she was like, well, you have to take into account that this was during the pandemic. And so the <laughs> pandemic, of course, is going to yield a completely different series of outcomes. Um, and so there's that on the one hand. And then on the other hand, there is... Um, we have to ask ourselves whether or not that study that you referred to, the Swedish one, that showed the patient's getting worse over time, if, it, if we're going to see headlines in HuffPo, in Vice, saying, new study comes out showing that, you know, market improvements. Because things that outrageous have been in circulation. That's, that has been Jesse Singel's sort of, uh, you know, stock and trade is demonstrating, no, you actually look at the study and it shows the opposite. It, well, no, he, he looks at what's hidden in the study. Okay, yeah. So, yeah. It, what happens in the media is the study is bad, but it's hidden. Yeah. And the conclusion of the study is things are good. And okay. then there's a press release. And since so it, does, since did, did it confirms have... the bias, it gets reported on the press. It, the, there's no press release that says Swedish study shows purity blockers and hormones makes kids worse. And even in, that wouldn't be released to the press. And even if they got a hold of it, they wouldn't report it because right. they it, it it doesn't occur to them that that's news. They so, only report it when it shows that it's working. So the abstract, even if it's lying. the abstract on that study does not has not been tortured into finding a way to say that this makes things better. I mean, I'd have to look. But okay, I don't think it's a big okay like, important study. So so that however study, they did go through. A bunch of studies saying, you know, quickly at, uh, one yeah. morning, oh, this study yeah. is yeah. shows this good thing and this, and these were studies that had been already debunked right. by, by our corner of the world, and we already knew were oh, bullshit. Yeah, like the Todorov study, yeah, but you know, they were still presenting it as. Right. So this study is not your. This is not your pathway to tenure. <laughs> that person who presented that study in good faith. And, and maybe, yes. you know, embarked on the study hoping to find improvements, did not find improvements, reported that no improvements were found, and is just going to have to try to find a, a, a way to get a study that will yeah. be her pathway to tenure. I, I, I do want to comment. Good <laughs> yeah. So one of the things uh, that we've, that we're starting to understand from the explosion of young people who are identif identifying as trans is that the clinics that provide services for this cohort have similarly had to start uh, building up their their staffing. It's not like you can call, uh, you know, Kelly Technical Services and order a bunch of gender clinicians. So they, not yet. Not yet. Let's, let's hope it's coming, though. Um, in a, what they do is they hire very green uh, psychology students right out of school and uh, this is what we know from the JIDS clinic in the UK. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they just put them straight to work. There's no onboarding. Um, they, they start getting their caseloads. They're, they're learning on the job, and they're not really getting any good uh, set of best practices. But now that they're out of school, now that they're working with this client population, if they want to secure their careers, what they need to do is start producing some research. And mm -hmm. whether whether that's a really well produced study, we know that they're not doing it. They're not they're not doing good data collection. 
of the... And the reason that they can't do good data collection is because you need to have some sort of consistency in your protocol in order to know what's changing over time, and there's no consistency in the protocols. So what you have to do instead, and what they're... What, what it, it, apparently, this is my impression, that a lot of these... Uh, practitioners are doing in order to try to advance their careers are, are doing these little uh, very very poorly um, executed survey type of yeah. papers where uh, the one the one that uh, you mentioned uh, before uh, the German paper is um, gender on the spectrum non-binary gender identities and gender fluidity has four authors it's from Germany and all they did was send out uh, something that was hardly more than a personality survey. And it was asking, uh, do you feel gender binary or do you feel gender fluid today? Mm-hmm. Which, it, you know, if, if you take a personality test on, on two consecutive days, you're going to get slightly different answers. But what, what they're doing is, when they present the slides, they say, ah, for, for this difference between these two populations is significant to a degree of, yeah. uh, you know... Point point zero two R value. You know, but it's, it's like those Facebook quizzes that leaked everybody's personal yeah. information. Where it's like, what color are you? <laughs> it, it is uh, on that particular German uh, study. They they had a slide where they were they had like an open text box, and they said what what uh, influenced your gender yeah. uh, experience. And here are some answers that they had. Uh, so for, this is from a fifteen year old trans man slash boy. Uh, Puberty made me feel more and more uncomfortable. And I hit a lot. Yeah. Did did puberty make you uncomfortable? No, I loved every minute of it, and I did not cry every night uh, from age right. twelve to fourteen. Have I swear. Like a serious, serious eating disorder. <laughs> How was puberty for you? Men, uh, men almost never talk about that, by the way. It, I don't. Re- I don't recall it as a great trauma. Yeah. Let us say. Do you recall it as a real hoot? So, so you're suppressing it. That's fine. <laughs> We don't get the answer we like. Yeah. We'll figure out how to turn your response into the answer we want. So a, path style. Another comment from a 15-year-old non-binary. Um, so again, because this is F factors influencing your gender experience. Body became more feminine. Uh, okay. No flat chest anymore. Mm-hmm. That and that is so yet. often the indicator of success. Like that, fam- that big study about top surgery that was like promoted all over in the U.S. It was just like, do you have boobs? Did you want boobs? Did you not want boobs? Success! Yeah. And that's so often, like, their outcome measures, like, patient didn't want breasts, we cut them off, it was successful. And not, like, we checked in with the patient and, like, they were functioning well overall and they didn't regret it a significant amount of time later. Like, it's never like that. Yeah. Uh, Alright, there's one more and then, yeah, I, then yeah. I want to cap this. So this is from 16-year-old trans man slash boy. Uh, again, this is factors influencing gender experience. YouTube... No. Trans people who are often open to questions on social media. Okay, so I want to cap this. Um, again, this is puberty, uh, my body became feminine, and I lost my fat chest, and I'm watching all this shit on YouTube and social media. This is what the researchers thought were interesting poll quotes from their open survey to put on a slide and present to their peers as, huh, look, this is, this is this is what people what, what young uh, girls in Germany are saying influences their their gender experiences, and I, I think that 
um, probably the genspect attendees would be like, wow, that's probably why our daughters are getting into this. <laughs> right? If only they'd gone to EPATH, they probably would have learned these important things. <laughs> um, there was one other program that, that we saw that was uh, based on a, a similar type of survey. And this, this one, the, the, they always give these uh, pretty good names, right? Um, let's see here. Let me find this other. Uh, all right. So there's, uh, I'm, I'm searching for, for the word Flanders, uh, Belgium in, in the list of abstracts. Yes. But there's paper after paper after paper that was just presented on this online anonymous survey that was mm-hmm. conducted between January or October 2021 and January 2022. So uh, I'm, I'm having difficulty finding the exact abstract that I'm looking for because it's it's all based on the same data set. Yeah. So this is this is one more problem, mm-hmm. which is uh, so the turban problem. Yeah. You yeah. you you don't start with any hypothesis. You collect as much data as you can. And then you slice it until it tells you something that is helpful for the point that you're trying to make. That's, you know, they're, they're trying to do some things to uh, help researchers, like, they have to, like, file their hypothesis before yeah. they publish to try to get more consistency or, or alignment between what they think they're studying and what, what they're going to actually report. Yeah. But uh, I, I think that you know, I'm not an academic, so I want to be careful about what sort of claim I make here. But this seems like it's lacking. I know, like, why, why should I be careful if they're not? Um, right. But this seems like it's lacking rigor. Yeah. Um, hmm. Yeah, they're... Curious! They're, <laughs> uh, it's, it's just mad. I'll, I'll try to find this, this survey and then I'll, I'll... Or the abstract for this and then I'll talk about it. Okay. okay. So I guess the final question would be that you you both attended Genspect and you attended EPATH. Uh, Eliza presented at Genspect and uh, and contributed the overall framing of the event, uh, which had to do with the uh, well. You might want to give your statement on that with the reconstitution of the human dimension. Uh, and uh, and how do you think these two? They're complementary in a way, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but 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 on the other hand, uh, you know the, the 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 underlying premises and the conclusions and the information that were that was brought to light in each of these conferences, you know, it, it, it may it may null it, it may null the foundational uh, right uh, premises of the other one. So, uh, you know, we're all on a side. It's like here. sex and gender identity. They're yeah. you know competing and. <laughs> Right. Hard, it's hard to make room for them both. So we're all on a side here, and, and, and we began... In what way was your understanding of things deepened by having... Uh, uh, and, and how much more sort of strongly do you feel what you already, began, what you already felt when you began having, guess, having experienced both events? I guess I would say they're complementary in the way that people furiously digging a hole in the ground are complementary with people trying to build a bridge so that people can get over the hole. Um, <laughs> The comment that Wesley made about uh, the the kind of overall framing of the Genspec conference with reference to WPATH and EPATH is, and I feel like I've just recounted this a couple of times and I feel a little self-conscious about repeating it again, but 
Um, but but WPATH really unfolded on these two levels, and one of them was this very abstract level, which was like this battlefield between affirmation and transphobia, and there are the good guys and there are the bad guys. And then the level of like truly nauseating surgical detail. And that there was nothing in between. And like like we've spoken about, like that there was no imagination, there was no curiosity, there was no concern. It was just, yeah, it was you know, they're talking about at, at WPATH in particular, they were talking about eunuchs, they were talking about boys who were disproportionate like a huge share of them had been threatened with castration by their parents when they were children, and the researcher presents it and just moves on and it's like, does that have something to do with why they identify as eunuchs? Like, there would be no human curiosity about people, why people would want these procedures, or whether they should be done, or whether it's ethical. And GenSpect was intended to kind of put the humanity back into the gender issue, which for all of the expressions of care about people, and all of the expressions about empowering people to be their true selves, like, the human piece is just missing. And I think at Genspect, I don't think I've ever seen so many people cry at a conference. <laughs> I, I don't think I've ever seen so many people agree and disagree at a conference. Like, it was very, it was very human. Yeah, I think that, you know, somebody called my, my take Pollyanna, and... And that was me. Yeah. That was you? Um, <laughs> um, and I understand that. Um, I, you know, I, I haven't been traumatized yet. My family hasn't been traumatized. My mm-hmm. chil- children haven't been hurt yet. But I've spent the better part of like three years bearing witness to the stories, to the... Uh, unbelievable stories that I have not been able to get into the mainstream press and I've yeah. tried everything you really I could have. think of. I, I'm everything that I could think of, which was crazy making. And, um, and I felt, you know, like I failed people. And, um, so the thing about the Genspec conference is that it was filled with traumatized people and I was thinking about you know how can we what would have happened if Anna Lou DeVries came over you know and, yeah. and, and, and how how could we I don't I don't think it will work to just shut it down I don't think it works like that where we could just say oh the evidence is bad and you, yeah. you're crazy there's got to be a long-term strategy and I made this comment about the radical center which was a radical centrist that was a Ken Zucker term and mm-hmm. that like we need the stories of the traumatized people um, and then we but we also need people who don't just want vengeance and we also need people who don't just think that there's a genocide mm-hmm. and um, and we need people who are invested in reform, but also in, in bearing witness to, to what's happened. When I was at 
EPATH, I was looking at a, around at, there were just lots and lots and lots and lots of trans people there. And I was thinking, this is so, it must be so nice for you. You're walking around, no one's staring at you. You feel safe here, that must be wonderful. But I, mean, I was also... I, I didn't feel that. Yeah, well, yeah. except for the transsexual they were kicking out. Yeah. But anyway, uh, um, but, but what I was thinking was... Your hope is to make the whole world like this conference so that yes. you can walk around feeling safe. And, and the, so that everyone sees the facts in the right light. So the backlash you perceive as being about you, right? When they say we are under attack, what they're not getting is that their attempt to impose their belief system onto the rest of the world and make the rest of the world into one giant EPAF conference is what people are pushing back on. Yeah. And and I don't know how to make that clear. And that's why I've done some work on the difference between trans people and trans ideology and how can we love our transsexual friends and not want someone to tell us that sex isn't real. <laughs> or like and and I it must, it's great to feel safe. It's even better to feel fortified. And what was going on in the EPATH conference that was about fortifying people who are different in some way? Because I can't expect, I can try to make the world and have and will continue to try to make the world more understanding of the naturalness of gender nonconformity so yeah. that my child can just walk around the world and be left alone. But no matter what my child needs to know that the world is hostile to gender nonconformity and that like the, the shit, the, it, it, I mean, the shit in the bathrooms is real. She gets screamed at in bathrooms like, yeah, okay, funny. okay, yeah, you know yeah, what? Yeah. I, no, I, I take that back. That sounds like them. Not the whole world yeah. is that there are times when it's going to be a little more complicated to be in the world. Yeah, yeah. Can I amend that, please, yeah. so that I'm yes. not yeah. speaking? Okay, so can can you erase that? No, I'm just saying. <laughs> I realize as it was coming out, that's not the message. The message is like, yeah, it's like there's some adjustments you have to make. She has to gender. be a little tougher. She has to be a little tougher, and you and like I'm not tough, so I'm try learning to be tough because I've taken on this subject. But I just kept thinking. Who's helping you guys be resilient so that yeah. you can just walk around in the world no matter who's staring at you or someone's yeah. misgendering you and you can just be like, well, I know who I am, so who the fuck cares? You know, who's helping you with that? And meanwhile, Jen Specht is like, yeah, like this terrible thing happened to you. How are you strengthening yourself? How are you finding joy? Like, what is your family doing to recover? Yeah. So, you know, that is, I want, I'm going with that message. I'm, I'm going with that approach. Can I steer us back to the EPATH stuff? Mm-hmm. All right. I'm done. That's fine. I, I just, I just want to make sure that we get more EPATH stuff in, because I'm fading a little bit, and I think yeah, I mean, we we're do, all fading. Uh, yeah, we're we do all want to at least get a whiskey with the, yes. with the, with the crew. Mm -hmm. um, so, we did all go to the final plenary, where they did the... Uh, reviewed the four countries. I didn't go. I didn't. The three of us went. The three of us did. You didn't go. Uh, so uh, there was one thing that I thought was particularly interesting since I'm currently in Hannah Barnes's uh, Time to Think book, and that is that uh, the pediatric, uh, adolescent pediatric doctor 
uh, Gary Butler gave the uh, UK update in, in that final day's plenary session, and he was extremely defensive. Yeah. Um, he, among other things, he attacked Hillary Cass yeah. by implying that her review of JIDs was motivated by uh, an interest which he called uh, nepotism, uh, because two of the clinics at which she consults were uh, were able to benefit from the closure of the Tavistock uh, uh, JIDs program. Um, Gary Butler, Dr. Gary Butler, also uh, caused the attendees to basically give a loud cheer for the former head of JIDs, yes. uh, Polly Carmichael. And one of the takeaways that I got from that, because the it sounded like enthusiastic uh, cheering for that. It did. That even though there is now very well documented, uh, I don't know if proof is the right word, but a, a book which, which has very a lot of citations that explain things that have been gone, going wrong at the Tavistock and under the leadership of Polly Carmichael. And for the auditorium, which was, since it's a plenary session, it's every, mm-hmm. every, there's no other session happening there. Anybody who wants to be in, in any session is in that session. So much cheering there says, we don't care that things went wrong. Right. It was so much more important that we tried, even if we failed, than if we were to not take all of those kids and try to sex change them. Yeah. Like we were doing, we, we did the right, we did the wrong things for the right reasons instead of uh, caring about the fact that they did the wrong things. Yeah. That struck me, too. That's frightening. Yeah, it is. Well, that's ending on a depressing note. <laughs> I, don't th- I don't think it's ending. <laughs> right. Well, I just meant this, but yes. Oh. Um, but I think it's good to know that that's what happened at the end of it. That says a yeah. lot. Well, and then they played Don't Stop Believing. Right. You are about to embark upon the great crusade. The only the eyes of the world are upon you. Not glass in the field. I saw it happen. Do you have a martyr complex? Do you have a militant attitude relative to the area of civil rights? Your task will not be an easy one. The road ahead will be long. We're going to make sure the society wins.